Well, good evening and welcome to our Plum Creek Chapel Midweek Bible Study. This is uh, May 4th and looking forward to a, a good uh, time together in the Word tonight. Uh, you can probably tell by looking at the background that we're not actually at Plum Creek Chapel. And I apologize for that, but uh, schedule this week was just crazy hectic uh, with uh, our travel to Wisconsin for the conference there. And uh, I'll give a little report on that here in a moment. But uh, as it worked out, it just wasn't possible for me to get to uh, Plum Creek tonight. So I appreciate your patience as we uh, do our Bible study by live stream tonight. But I sure miss you guys. I really I can't wait to be uh, back in person this weekend at Plum Creek. We'll be continuing our series on what lies ahead at the nine o'clock hour, looking at some more characteristics of the millennial phase of the kingdom. And uh, boy, it's going to be great with everything going on in the world today. It just seems like every day uh, we uh, long for that coming kingdom more and more, don't we? Uh, but then uh, I'll continue my series on the book of Acts uh, in uh, the worship hour. We're still in Acts chapter nine and going to look at uh, uh, a character by the name of Ananias, not the same Ananias from Acts uh, chapter 5, but uh, uh, nevertheless a key figure in the early days of the church uh, as we continue our look at the Apostle Paul's uh, conversion. But before we dive into our study tonight, I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of roadmap of where we're going from here. Um, let's uh, talk about some quick uh, announcements. First of all, I mentioned that I was in Portage, Wisconsin. I spoke seven times over three days, had a fantastic time together with those great brothers and sisters in Christ. It was very well attended, and we had uh, at one point over 600 people uh, live streaming. So we're thankful for those of you that tuned in to watch the live stream. All of those videos are now posted at notbyworks.org, uh, or you can listen to the audio-only podcasts uh, at the Not By Works podcast channel, uh, which is available on everywhere podcasts are found. Uh, so I hope you'll take advantage of that and, and uh, give that a listen. Uh, this weekend, uh, my heavy travel season continues as I'll be up in Fort Collins in northern Colorado uh, for a Friday-Saturday conference entitled Angels, Demons, and You. And I can't wait to, to be there for that one. I'll be uh, capping off the conference at the end with the final session at 1130 Central, or I'm sorry, it should be 1130 Mountain Time, not Central Time. Um, Mountain Time, uh, the final session of the conference, but some great speakers, a great topic, and I hope you'll, uh, if you're in the Colorado area, try to make it out for some of those either Friday night or Saturday morning. If not, uh, the conference itself is live streaming. We will not be live streaming that at notbyworks.org, but if you click on the link in our website at notbyworks.org, it'll take you to the Fort Collins Bible Church website, and they will uh, be live streaming it. Uh, since we last met, I know I was not here last Wednesday. We were traveling, as uh, uh, I mentioned, and I heard some great things about Mike Quinlan uh, stepping up and leading out last Wednesday at Plum Creek. Uh, but we've had several different uh, uh, messages, uh, you know, posts to our website. Uh, we did a Christ in Prophecy short little eight-minute video with the great folks there at Lamb and Lion Ministry. And uh, you can check that out at notbyworks.org. Uh, then our regular Tuesday podcast uh, with uh, Kurt Chamberlain on the Christian Underground News Network. We talked about the conflict of the ages. And that's, uh, of course, still posted as well as a podcast only at uh, notbyworks.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And then one final conference coming up later this month, and that's uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, it's not too late to sign up. There are still uh, registrations available. 
I do not believe this conference is going to be live streamed. I'll find out when I get there. If not, I may try to live stream just my messages from the podium, and if so, I'll send out an email letting people know about that. I want to remind you about the book, Spirit of the Antichrist. We've been getting more and more uh, just great feedback and more and more uh, reorders. We had someone order 500 copies just yesterday uh, for their ministry. And so the Lord is using this, and it's a very important message that means the world to me to get out. It's something that's been a burden of mine for 15 years. And to see this kind of response at such a time as this to the content uh, that we uh, expose in that book is really, really uh, encouraging. So where are we going to go uh, from here? Well, uh, let's talk about that for a second. You know, we're coming to the close of our study on how to read and understand the Bible, but I, I could have probably wrapped it up tonight, but I want to do that in person and just kind of do some review with you guys uh, next Wednesday. And so uh, we'll probably have two more weeks tonight and next week uh, talking about Bible study methods. And, and I'm going to start the review tonight and go over a few things, and then we'll uh, finish up next week and, and sort of wrap it all up in a nice, neat bow. That'll be 24 sessions, and I think it's been a good study. I know we've had some really great topics uh, and, and discussions on given nights that have really kind of stood out in my mind as some of the better uh, Bible studies that, uh, that we've done. But I've been thinking a lot since the last time I was with you a couple of weeks ago about a question, <clears throat> question that someone asked um, during the Bible study that Wednesday night. And it got me thinking about what uh, I think we're going to do next. And uh, that is, we're going to talk about what is Calvinism and is it biblical? So I did a series uh, by that title several years ago, but it was uh, audio only. I mean, we had, we had the slides in there, but it wasn't uh, video recorded. You couldn't see me. And, of course, we're always improving things and tweaking things. And so I think it's time to, to talk about that again. Plus, it seems to be something that's of interest to folks at Plum Creek Chapel. So I wanted to let you know that on uh, May the 18th, uh, so basically two weeks from tonight, uh, we'll begin that series. And we're going to go slow and steady and take plenty of questions and really work our way through some of the crucial issues related to the doctrine of salvation, specifically as it relates to this rising tide of Calvinism, which is uh, really huge right now, uh, very popular. Many of you may have heard of Calvinism and always wondered kind of what is it. Well, we're going we're gonna to tackle it and talk about it in their own words and then see what the Bible has to say about it. But as we begin tonight, you know, today's a, an interesting uh, day and uh, a verse that kind of came across my desk uh, today that really encouraged me. In fact, I've already had the opportunity to pass it on to someone else is from Daniel 3, 24 and 25. You remember the context there. Daniel, uh, uh, the, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are refusing to uh, bow down and worship the image that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so uh, he uh, threatens to cast them into the fiery furnace, which, of course, he does. Before he does it, though, they say very boldly and confidently that they believe their Lord can deliver them <coughs> from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. They trust in him and they will not worship uh, the false god that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we pick it up with that background in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished as he was looking inside the fiery furnace. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, in other words, not bound, 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And that leads me to uh, what I think is the Beth, best May 4th meme ever. Someone sent this to me today. May the 4th be with you. Amen. Now, many thanks to the young lady from Tomball, Texas, for sending that my way. Uh, but what a great encouragement it is to know that our Lord Jesus Christ is with us wherever we go. Those are the words that he left us with in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even uh, to the end of the age. And so on this May 4th of 2022, May the 4th, that is, may Jesus be with you. And remember that no matter what you may be facing uh, today. So let's, uh, let's dive in. I want to review uh, to kind of help tie things together. You know, it's been, uh, as we said, 23 weeks now, and we've had some breaks in there, and there have been some uh, weeks where we've kind of chased a few rabbits. And so I want to get us back on track thinking about the whole purpose of this study, and that is to help us correctly handle the Word of God. You know, God's Word is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. It's God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. And when we sit down and uh, in front of our Bible and begin to read it, we want to make sure that we are handling it correctly. We're cutting straight as we uh, read about in 2 Timothy 2.15. And how do we do that? Well, it's been a while since we've looked at the paradigm that I first introduced several weeks ago. We touched on it a couple times since then, just by way of review, but it's been several weeks. So I thought it would be good to review it uh, tonight. And that is the five steps in the Bible pro uh, study process. Of course, it starts with the Bible. Unfortunately, these days, many uh, Bible studies actually don't really resemble a true Bible study at all. They're more of a discussion group or a theorizing group or a support group. But if you're going to study the Bible, it begins with the Bible. So you, you open your Bible, you look at a particular passage or section of Scripture, and you study it in its literal, grammatical, historical context. We spent quite a bit of time describing what we mean by the literal, grammatical, historical method. Basically, it's a fancy uh, technical academic way to say that when you read the Bible, you're looking for the plain, normal, natural meaning, the straightforward or face value meaning, the customary usage of language. You're not looking for some hidden, deeper, mystical meaning. You're looking for the plain, straightforward meaning of uh, the text. And so then, after you've examined the text and its context, you begin to expand the focus and compare Scripture with Scripture to see what else the Bible has to say about that particular topic or whatever passage, what other passages of Scripture might bear on that subject. And uh, that's called uh, theological synthesis or uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture, as I call it in my five steps here. Uh, theologians call it the analogy of faith, basically reminding us that Scripture best interprets itself. That's what that phrase analogy of faith means or has come to mean. It's just a short form way of saying that Scripture best interprets itself. So at steps one and two, you're really uh, focused on the Word of God. You're diving into the Word of God. You looked at a passage in context. You expanded the focus to see what else God's Word has to say about it. And then at step three, you uh, formulate a clear belief statement. You basically summarize your conclusions. So if you're studying, say, for example, the topic of healing, what does the Bible say about healing? Old Testament, New Testament. You start with a key passage. You expand the focus. You look at the concentric circles of context that we've talked a lot about. But you, you ultimately have to land somewhere and say, okay, this is what we can say definitively about 
the, the doctrine of healing or what God's Word says about healing. So step three is basically the way to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about, and then you fill in the blank. And so we said at this step, essentially, we have arrived at the meaning of the text. You know, when God revealed uh, His Word to us through the pen of 40 different human authors over 1,500 uh, years in three different languages, He intended to communicate something. It wasn't some mystical code that we have to try to decipher. It was simple uh, meaning. And, and when we use the literal grammatical historical method, we are going to arrive at that meaning every time. Now, once you get to the meaning, then you move on to the next phase of the process, which is to take what you've discovered from God's Word and apply it. First of all, you apply it to life in general, using it as a grid to either accept or reject other truth claims. So, you know, right now the sanctity of life has been in the news a lot because of this uh, leaked Supreme Court draft of, of a ruling that they anticipate handing down later this summer. I think there's a lot more to that story than meets the eye. I won't take the time to go into that now, but perhaps on Sunday, if someone will remind me, I'll give you my speculation about what's really going on there. Remember, the Supreme Court is not organic. It's completely controlled, has been for decades. I don't think for a second that these same so-called conservatives who voted to support gay marriage and voted to, you know, approve several other liberal things, voted to to not take a look at the 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 2020 election said, no, no, nothing to see here, move along, when clearly there was blatant fraud. Those are the same guys that are now allegedly claiming to be, uh, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade, which I hope they do. I hope, uh, I hope for at least in the short term, we do see uh, a slowdown in the number of uh, abortions. And uh, But it's as with everything in the Luciferian conspiracy, it's not about what it's about. But, you know, as you think about this subject of abortion right now that's that's on everybody's mind because of this late you know breaking news earlier this week you know you've got to take what god's word has to say and use it to either reject or accept the you know the the world's claims about life of course the world claims that an unborn human being is not a human being so therefore it's okay to kill him uh, but god's word says life begins at conception so that's what we're doing there at step four we're evaluating the world's truth claims through the lens of the conclusions that we have arrived at in the first three steps. But then there's one final step in the process, and that is to apply what you've learned to your own personal life. Because never forget, the goal of Bible study is a changed life. A changed life. And so, you know, you may think, well, we've gotten into some pretty academic, interesting, detailed uh, material over the last uh, 23, 24 weeks. And you know, boy, uh, is it, uh, you know, why do we go into such level of detail? Well, it's not just about getting smarter or, you know, learning new information. It's about using that living and active Word of God to pierce our hearts, separate that within us which longs for the flesh from that which longs for the Spirit, like a two-edged sword, and ultimately change our lives to conform to the image of Christ. And so those, those you know, last two steps there are the application phase. And most people today tend to focus on application when it comes to the Bible, skipping right over meaning, and therefore they are often applying certain passages of Scripture completely out of context. Uh, but we, we want to do it in the proper order. You've got to start with what does it say, what does it mean, and how do I apply that to my life? You know, that's uh, essentially 
the three broad steps. Uh, you know, uh, observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, what do I do with that information? So uh, that's just a quick overview. I know for some of you that's repetitious, but you know, we're picking up new uh, viewers all the time at our uh, live stream at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, and also, uh, I know even those of you that have been with us from the beginning of the series, uh, it never hurts to, to review a little bit. And it helps me, quite honestly, because we're doing so many different things and different series going on, and then we take a break, or in this case, you know, I was gone. It's been two weeks since we were together in this context about uh, how to, miss, how to uh, read and understand the Bible, that it kind of helps me refocus and kind of keep things, uh, you know, in proper uh, context. So one other thing that I want to review before we get to where we have been the last few weeks, and that is this idea of how we got our Bible. Uh, this we started out in the first few weeks of this study because it's so critical that we are able to trust what we hold in our hands, that this book is in a class by itself. It's, uh, it's not the work of human authors. It's the, the work of the divine author, God himself. He used, of course, human authors, but it all started with truth in God's mind. And then through the process of revelation, the unveiling of that truth, it became truth in the human author's mind, who then through the process of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, wrote down the original manuscripts of the 66 books of the Bible. And as I said, that occurred over about a 1500 year period with some 40 different human authors. And then in the early days of the church, through the process of what has come to be called canonicity, the church discovered uh, those inspired golden books of God. They didn't decree them or declare them or determine them. They discovered them. God is the one who determines which books are inspired and infallible and inerrant. But the church was led along by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who uh, carried along the writers of Scripture to record God's revelation, also superintended over the process of discovering those books. And then for the last 2,000 years, we've seen the doctrine of preservation at work as uh, the, the truth of God's Word from the original manuscripts is preserved in the original documents uh, through, through the, the scribes. And then uh, over in, in more modern times, we had, the, through the process of translation, taking those ancient manuscripts and translating them into modern English. So that that's, brings us to the, the Bible that we hold in our hands. And then through the process of illumination and interpretation, two ministries of the Holy Spirit, uh, we are able to take what once was truth in God's mind, or is truth in God's mind, and place it in our minds. But of course, that's not the end of the process. As I mentioned a second ago, the goal is then to apply that truth, use that truth in our minds to, to navigate life and change our lives. So the last few weeks, we talked a lot about Proverbs, as you recall, and boy, what a rich uh, study that was, as it certainly gives us a number of nuggets that we can easily apply day after day as we try to navigate uh, this life. So then from then, from there, we went on to talk a little bit about literary genre. And we talked about how the books of the Bible are categorized into different sections and uh, that each section is a little bit different. It's all the infallible inspired Word of God, but the context is different. The, the, the intention is different. The audiences are different. And so you've got historical books, you've got poetic books, you've got prophecy, you've got uh, gospel books, you've got epistolary literature, which is just another way to say letters, an epistle is a letter. And so we spent quite a, a bit of time talking about different rules uh, for interpreting different genres. Uh, and so 
Then we got into the 24 rules of interpretation. We've just slowly been working our way through these. We haven't quite finished them. We will get a little bit further along tonight and then we'll wrap it all up next week in the final uh, installment of this study. But let's just take a moment to review, bring us up to where we last were, and then we'll look at a few new rules uh, tonight. So uh, first of all, we looked at some general principles of interpretation. Uh, a lot of times these may seem obvious. Uh, in some cases you may say, oh, these go without saying, but they really don't because sadly in our postmodern age, many people have completely abandoned the authority of Scripture, uh, either explicitly in the case of many liberal uh, churches or also uh, implicitly because while they may give lip service to the authority of God's Word, in reality when push comes to shove, you know, that's... Uh, uh, you know, they, they abandoned that principle. I had a conversation with someone at the conference this weekend in Wisconsin, super guy. I don't, only had a, maybe five minutes with him at the table, um, but he was interested in something I had said that's going to be coming out in volume two of the book, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist. And we completely agreed uh, on the content of what, what I had discussed and what's going to be happening, but he interpreted it a little different. And I explained to him that, you know, I couldn't get there because the Bible is very plain on that particular topic. I won't get into the details, but it was a good-natured discussion. But it was an example of where people are allowing other sources to infiltrate their worldview and draw conclusions based on that that are inherently contradictory to the Bible. And that's where, that, where we can't go. We just can't do that. So we've got to start from the premise that the Bible is authoritative. And we mentioned earlier in, in my five steps in the Bible study process that the Bible best interprets itself. That's a clear principle. In other words, the Bible cannot contradict itself. Um, saving faith and the Holy Spirit are necessary to fully embrace and properly apply the Scriptures. We talked about that for some time, and I think it gave rise to some really uh, you know, energetic and helpful edifying uh, discussions and Q&A, but all we mean there at number three is just simply the point that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and it's the Holy Spirit that works in conjunction with the Word of God to help lead and guide and convict and reprove and encourage and assure and so many other ministries of the Holy Spirit. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, meaning you're not saved, then you might be able to cognitively comprehend the words on the page of Scripture but that's as far as it'll go. You'll never be able to welcome and embrace the truth of God's Word as it is, you know, the teaching uh, of, of absolute truth for all of life. So that's why we say saving faith, meaning you have to be a Christian, uh, and the Holy Spirit are necessary to fully embrace and properly apply the Scriptures. So when we say the Holy Spirit's necessary, obviously every believer has the Holy Spirit, but some believers who have quenched the Spirit or are not walking in the Spirit or have uh, are living in, out of fellowship with the Lord, they basically are, have cut off that, that uh, lifeline in, in a manner of speaking as well. So they may, in, in effect, be no different than unbelievers when it comes to studying Scripture. They're just going through the motions. And I've known people like that. I think I gave some illustrations of that when we first talked about this point number three, that people, they're, they're saved. They'll go to heaven when they die, but they've drifted so far from the Lord and they're involved in prolonged immorality and, and sin so such that for them, reading the Bible and even teaching the Bible in some cases is just kind of this rote uh, pattern 
you know, that's not, not really leading, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Number four is a biggie. We, we've got to remember to interpret personal experience in light of the Scripture and not the other way around. We never interpret Scripture in light of our personal experience. Frankly, that's what this uh, nice gentleman that I was talking with uh, uh, at the conference uh, this weekend was, was doing. He had had some experiences, and he had studied some things, and he'd been told some things, and therefore uh, they had to be true, even though they contradicted Scripture. But we've got to be willing to rethink our experiences. Experiences are real. We can't deny someone's experience. If something happens to them, it happened. But how we interpret that experience is an entirely different thing. So we always use um, the Scripture to interpret our personal uh, experiences. Uh, some more general principles. Number five, biblical examples are authoritative only when supported by a command. In other words, particularly in the historical portions of Scripture, there are a lot of things that happen that are not ideal. They're not, not, God does not condone them. He's just telling us what happened. Um, and so we want to you know, remember the distinction between clear commands in Scripture and you know, descriptive portions of God's Word that are just giving us a historical account. Again, the primary purpose of the Bible is to change our lives, not to increase our knowledge. You saw that one worked into my five steps in the Bible study process that we talked about a moment ago. Uh, each person has the right and responsibility to investigate and interpret the Word of God for himself. That's number seven. In other words, you don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through some other you know, mechanism that because the Holy Spirit indwells believers, uh, we can read the Word of God and apply it to our lives without uh, the aid of some third party. Now, God in His divine design in the present church age has given us a structure called the local church in which certain leaders in the local church are held to a higher standard and higher accountability and are called to go deeper and, and learn more and be teachers. You know, they're supposed to be apt to teach. Uh, that's people such as myself who feel a calling of the Lord to teach the Word of God. I've been doing that for 32 years and doesn't mean I'm right or perfect, uh, but uh, it does mean that God has gifted me in a unique way to be able to maybe help people in their study of the Word. But please don't ever think that, you know, you can sidetrack the Bible study process by just going to some teacher and saying, tell me what to believe. You know, we live in an age where people like to be spoon-fed and don't like to investigate things uh, for themselves. But you definitely don't want to do that uh, when it comes to the Word of God. And that's why you hear me say often, uh, you should, you should uh, study these things for yourself and come to your own conclusions. Uh, number eight, church history is important but not decisive in the interpretation of Scripture. It's helpful to kind of know how God has worked throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. But the Bible hasn't changed, and it's the Bible that's our ultimate standard, not some decree or creed or counsel from church history or pope or anything like that. The promises of God through the Bible are available to believers of every generation through the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's a sort of universal nature to the God-man relationship, and it's not that certain people had that lived in a certain era had a closer relationship or an easier connection uh, to God. Uh, we're all in this together. We looked at several grammatical principles. Uh, number 10, just seeing it on the screen, reminds me of some great sessions we had uh, a couple months ago. And that is the principle of the singularity of meaning. Scripture has only one meaning and should be taken literally. Um, that gave us uh, time to really discuss and focus on the distinction between meaning and significance. So I touched on that 
at the outset of tonight's uh, lesson when we looked at the five steps in the Bible study process. But one meaning, but it can have an infinite number of applications as the Holy Spirit uses it in our lives. But if we were to say that a particular passage of Scripture could have multiple meanings, then who's to be the arbiter of which one is actually true? Uh, and there's an infinite number of possibilities on the meaning if, if we deny the singularity of meaning principle. Uh, interpret words in harmony with the meaning of the, uh, with their meaning in the times of the author. That gets back to the literal, grammatical, historical, uh, you know, concept that we talked about. Literal meaning taken in its plain, straightforward fashion. Grammatical meaning you take into account grammar and syntax and, and normal rules of language. And then uh, historical means that God's word was revealed at a moment in time, and therefore, you know, we should you know, uh, take into account the meaning of the words in their day. Uh, we talked about the concentric circles of context already, number 12 and 13. Uh, then number 14 is when an inanimate object is used to describe a living being, the statement may be considered figurative. And number 15 also relates to figures of speech. When an expression is considered out of character with the thing described, then it may be considered figurative. So we took a sort of side trip uh, for a couple of weeks talking about figures of speech. We did some uh, group exercises there, and, and uh, I think it was helpful um, uh, to, to really review how prevalent figures of speech are in God's Word, just as they are prevalent in every language. And uh, a figure of speech doesn't mean you can't still interpret the passage literally. And I recommended, for example, Bullinger's Figures of Speech book um, as, a, as a great resource that everyone should have. Uh, you can get it digitally now in, in uh, Logos Bible software uh, or in print. But, uh, you know, it's, it really helps us interpret Scripture more accurately uh, and arrive at the, the original meaning of the text when we're able to identify and recognize certain figures of speech. Um, we talked about prophecy uh, and how the rules for interpreting prophecy are really not much different from the normal literal grammatical historical approach. Uh, we said there are three kinds of prophetic fulfillment in Scripture. Complete fulfillment, where you have a prophecy and then it's later fulfilled. Partial fulfillment, where you have one prophecy, but it's fulfilled in stages, like it, half of it's fulfilled and the rest of it's fulfilled later. Then we talked about analogical fulfillment, where a New Testament author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would quote an Old Testament prophet seemingly out of context to make a point. And that's not suggesting that there's double fulfillment, still only one fulfillment, uh, but he's applying it as an analogy later on. And then uh, more recently, we spent some time in Proverbs. Uh, I hope you'll, if you haven't watched that or listened to those uh, sessions, I hope you'll go back and check those out. And I hope that you're spending some time in Proverbs. Uh, I hope it motivated you uh, to do that. Um, we, uh, we talked about a par parables. This is another one that stands out in my mind as being a particularly good uh, Bible study. It really, uh, we kind of had some good discussion, uh, iron sharpening iron in that session. Uh, but there's you know, key principles of how to interpret a parable. Most notably, we've got to remember what's the main point. People get obsessed when they're reading parables and try to identify some symbolic meaning with every minute detail in the parable. And that's a mistake. Because by nature, parables are essentially making one primary point, and the details are superfluous. They add flavor, they add visualization, so we can kind of picture ourselves being there. Remember we said a parable 
the Greek word is parabalo. It means balo, to throw, para, beside. So it's to take an everyday life circumstance and throw it alongside a spiritual principle to help illustrate that principle. Um, and so it's uh, going too far when you try to come up with some uh, creative meaning for every single detail of a parable. We use the example, for, uh, for example, in uh, the Olivet Discourse with the uh, ten virgins, five wise and five foolish, and, and how people have really dissected that down to the minutiae, when in reality that parable can be interpreted or, or summarized the teaching of it in two words, be ready. That's all Jesus was saying to the future nation of Israel that will be alive at his return uh, during that tribulation period. He's saying, be ready, be ready. Uh, so it's, it's unnecessary, and it also goes beyond the plain simple teaching of the text itself to try to identify what was the oil, what was the lambs, what was this, what was that. Uh, all of that is just kind of background music to a primary refrain. Um, and then uh, we said, since Scripture originated, these are some historical, some more historical uh, principles, uh, or I guess this is the first one we've come to in this section. Uh, since Scripture originated in a historical context, it can be only understood in the light of biblical history. So this is critical because people will take uh, worldviews and scientific, alleged scientific uh, teaching, really pseudoscience, and try to apply it back into the Scripture and make it fit. Uh, but the Bible tells a grand story. It's a, it's a grand meta-narrative from Genesis to Revelation. And it tells the story of mankind that is 6,000 years old, give or take, um, starts with creation, gets into the fall, gets into redemption, and ultimately recreation and sinless perfection. And notwithstanding what uh, your seventh grade biology teacher might say, or some a pagan, atheistic, Darwinian uh, science department at a university might say, the biblical history stands on its own. And as uh, our friend Russ Miller, who's uh, spoken at Plum Creek Chapel before, uh, uh, is, is fond of saying, the Bible is a Christian's best friend. And um, the Bible is, uh, or science is, I'm sorry, he, he says that too, but he says science is a Christian's best friend. Why? Because when properly understood, the Bible and science go perfectly together. But it's when you use science to trump Scripture that you've uh, crossed a line. Number 19, though God's revelation in Scripture is progressive, what do we mean by that? Well, as I said, it started in around the year 1446 B.C. when God began to reveal the Old Testament books of Moses to Moses in the wilderness as they were wandering for 40 years having uh, escaped Egypt. And he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then progressively over time, he unveiled the rest of the Bible. First the Old Testament and then the New Testament. And so uh, you, you want to interpret it based on uh, the, the priority of progressive revelation. In other words, later revelation, say the book of Matthew, cannot come along and change the meaning of something that God revealed a thousand years earlier through the pen of, of Moses or David. So that's called progressive revelation, and we have to have that sensitivity. But what point 19 is making here is that both parts, Old New Testament, are essential and form a unit. The New Testament doesn't trump the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't trump the New Testament. They go hand in glove, but neither one can contradict the other. And so that's one of the reasons that we are so passionate about the literal future earthly kingdom of Christ that we've been studying on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. 
that the Old Testament lays out in no uncertain terms a very clear picture of a literal earthly kingdom with dimensions of the temple, description of the materials of brick and mortar, a throne, a boundaries of the kingdom itself geographically, uh, kings, all of that. And those promises, if you do not take them literally, become meaningless and also they become totally chaotic and, uh, you know, uh, unintelligible to the original recipients. David would have felt lied to if he were to find out someday that God was just kidding about the kingdom, that there's not going to be a physical kingdom, a rebuilt temple. Ezekiel would have felt like he was uh, complicit in propagating a fraud because God revealed through him nine chapters in great detail of the beautiful ornateness of the coming temple someday that Christ is going to reign from in the kingdom. We're going to actually be talking about that this Sunday as we get into some of the spiritual characteristics of the future kingdom. So uh, because we understand each passage has to you know, be understood in its context, literally, grammatically, and historically, we must conclude that there is a future, a, a national future for Israel and a coming kingdom uh, someday. Uh, whereas to violate that, some would come along and say, well, the New Testament changed all that. And the New Testament clarified that what God really meant back then was this mystical spiritual kingdom. But what does that mean for the thousand intervening years between, say, 2 Samuel 7, 16 and the New Testament? That means that for a thousand years, it was impossible for anyone reading the scroll of 2 Samuel to have really understood it. Because for a thousand years, God didn't give us the real meaning. So you have to understand the order of the priority of progressive revelation. God revealed himself progressively over time and uh, later revelation can never change the meaning of uh, prior revelation. Uh, historical facts or events become symbols of spiritual truth only if the scriptures designate them so. Only if the scriptures designate them so. In other words, people tend to find types, it's called, and, and a type, the Greek word tupos, is, is, is a biblical concept. There, there are places in Scripture where uh, the New Testament designates something from the Old Testament to be a type of Christ, type and anti-type. But we don't have the freedom, in my view, to randomly and arbitrarily start picking what types are. I hold to a very strict understanding of typology, uh, somewhere out there, I've got a pretty lengthy video teaching on uh, typology that you can probably find on our YouTube channel. I don't think it's posted at our website anymore because it's probably 10 years old by now or more. Uh, but if you go to the Not By Works YouTube channel where we don't post things anymore, but all of our archived stuff is still there from years ago, uh, you might find it. But I take the view that the late Roy Zook took. Uh, he's a dear uh, uh, friend and uh, uh, he's with the Lord now, but he helped... Uh, co-author one of the books that I wrote, and uh, he, in his book, Basic Bible Interpretation, outlines what I think is the best approach to typology, which is that if the scripture doesn't designate it a type, we can't declare it to be a type. So we might see analogies, but it, that's, that's all that it is. Uh, so you can't just pick out certain Old Testament things and turn them into these spiritualized truths. Uh, and then, let's see, uh, we're going to save for next week uh, this discussion of interpreting narratives, because that's something we've touched on here and there just in passing, but we've not, I don't think we've looked at these key rules. But I would like to close out tonight by looking at the final four uh, principles. Uh, 
theological principles of interpretation. Number one, you must understand the Bible grammatically before you can understand it theologically. This just goes back to the basic LGH method, literal, grammatical, historical. And the classic example of this is, you know, how many times have you heard people teach the Great Commission, which in most English Bibles is translated, you know, from Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20, go therefore into all the world and make disciples and so forth. Well, people assume because of the English translation that the command is go. It sounds like a command. In fact, in English, it is a command. Go. Go in all the world and make disciples uh, and with the understood subject of you. But grammatically, remember the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And so even if you've never studied Greek formally or Hebrew in the Old Testament, these days with the tools that are available, you can do a quick study and recognize that in actuality, the word go is not a command. It's not an imperative. It's a participle. The only imperative in the Great Commission is make disciples. So the idea there is there are three participles in the Great Commission as you're going, as you're teaching, as you're baptizing, make disciples. So the going is a part of the process, but the real command here is to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ. But in order to do that, they've got to first believe the gospel, and then that's what the baptism is alluding to, because in the New Testament, anytime someone placed their faith in Christ, they then were soon thereafter were baptized as an outward expression. Uh, baptism doesn't save you, but it was just a par for the course of, of the early church. It was their way of saying, hey, I've trusted in Christ. So there's the salvation. And then the teaching, so baptizing, teaching. And the going just means everywhere you go, as you go, share the gospel and help people learn about Christ. So grammatical uh, principles are critical, and a lot of bad theology has has uh, been born out of people taking a particular word or phrase that is not even a primary clause in a sentence, it's a subordinate clause, and elevating it to be the primary uh, principle. Uh, a doctrine cannot be considered biblical unless it sums up and includes all that the scriptures say about it. This is so critical because most theology, most bad theology, you know, errors in theology, uh, are the result of failing to take into consideration the sum total of all that the Bible says. So, for example, they'll focus on a particular book or section of the Bible and forget that the, the rest of the Bible weighs in on that subject as well. And you need to look at it all before you can definitively draw some conclusions. And the problem is, what we tend to do is, is overly obsess about you know, those areas that are of greatest interest to us. So you, you've got the classic categories of, of systematic theology, meaning seeing the teachings of Scripture as a whole systematically. Uh, and those would be Bible, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, church, uh, angels, demons, mankind, sin, uh, salvation, discipleship, the end times or eschatology. Uh, and, you know, for me, my two greatest areas of interest are eschatology and soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation. That's what soteriology is. So if I'm not careful, I can see those themes from every verse I'm looking at. My mind just goes there because I love to think about the end times and I love to think about salvation. Um, and so what people are most interested in tends to be the area that they get out of balance in. And so this point number 22 reminds us that we've got to come at a topic with a blank slate and make sure we comprehensively take a look at everything the Scripture has 
to say about it. Number 23, uh, when we see two doctrines that are taught in the Bible that appear to be contradictory, we've got to accept both as scriptural in the competent belief that they will resolve themselves into a higher unity. The classic example of this is what we're going to be studying starting in two weeks, and that's Calvinism. See, Calvinists are very uncomfortable with the holy tension between sovereignty and free will. They don't like that tension. They've got to have it all figured out and put in a nice neat box and five steps in their little systematic approach. Uh, and it really drives them crazy uh, when I say, and I, I've spoken at I don't know how many Calvinist conferences. I've been to Ligonier and Desiring God and T4G and Crack and some of those conferences. I've interacted and had debates with and formal debates even with uh, uh, you know, all kinds of Calvinists. I, I, I'm not criticizing them personally. We'll talk more about this when we start the series. But for them, when I say I'm quite comfortable accepting the fact that the Bible teaches free will and it also teaches God's election, I'm comfortable with that. They, they, get, they laugh at, at me. They say, oh, you're just, you give up too easy. You know, you've got to land somewhere. You've got to, you know, they've got, it can't be both. Well, the fact is there are truths in Scripture that seem contradictory. And we just have to accept them both because God's Word says it. Um, and, you know, not only that, but sometimes there are passages that seem contradictory. And, uh, you know, going back to the principle we talked about earlier, where Scripture best interprets itself, when that happens, we know that it can't be, you know, contradicting itself because God doesn't contradict Himself. So sometimes we come at a passage and we say, well, I'm not really quite sure what it means yet. I need to do some more study, but I can rule out some things because we, we always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And, for example, when it comes to salvation, if the clear teaching of Scripture is that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, and another passage comes along and seems to imply that works are necessary to get to heaven, well, we can say, I can rule that out. So it might sound like that at first pass, but as we look a little closer, dig into the context, say, for example, James 2, which we've talked about, we recognize that's not what James is saying at all. Uh, so... Uh, number 23 is a big one. Of course, all of these theological principles are important to me because that's my field is systematic theology, and I love thinking in these terms. But um, don't give in to the pressure that some people uh, bring to bear indicating that everything has to be perfectly lined up. You know, we, we are comfortable with that holy tension between what is plainly taught in Scripture over here and what is plainly taught in Scripture over here and from our human minds, limited by time, space, and matter, they seem irreconcilable. Uh, like the Trinity, for example. Three, yet one. How can that be? Or the hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God, yet he's also 100% man. Well, that's 200%. Where's the extra 100% come from? You know, he's both, right? So uh, I think that's an important one. And then the last one that we'll talk about tonight, a teaching merely implied in Scripture may be considered biblical only when a comparison of related passages supports it. So this just gets into sort of building the case. You've heard people say that unless it's taught three times in Scripture, you know, you shouldn't uh, take it to the bank. I don't say that because, I mean, it only has to be said once in Scripture, and if it's clear and the plain normal meaning of the passage is unambiguous, then, then that's all we need is one time. But I think underlying that statement is just what this point number 24 is trying to say here. We, we need to avoid elevating to some, you know, grandiose level of, of priority a passing comment that 
really, especially this happens in the historical narrative portion of Scripture, that, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, have any attestation anywhere else in Scripture. So, um, you want, this is what cross-referencing is all about, those center column notes in your, in your Bible that compare one Scripture with another. You want to build a case. Uh, so, it might, there might be something that's implied in one context, but let's see what else Scripture has to say. And, and make sure we can support the premise that we're trying to build uh, from that one proof text. So that gets us through all 24 principles of interpretation or rules of interpretation. Uh, next week, we'll take a look at a narrative literature uh, and answer some questions and, uh, and just kind of wrap it all up and, and uh, uh, you know, finish this particular series. And then you can look forward, hopefully, hopefully you'll look forward to it. I'm looking forward to it in a couple of weeks to starting a new series, a theological series, on this idea of Calvinism. Where did it come from? What is it? What's the history of it? What are the main beliefs of Calvinism today? And what does the Bible say? We will be looking at a lot of Scripture as we work our way through those five points of, uh, of Calvinism. So that's all I've got for tonight. Uh, once again, I want to remind you that uh, this weekend I'll be up in Fort Collins Friday and Saturday. I'm only speaking Saturday, but I'll be there for both days. I want to hear what some of these guys uh, have to say. Great conference on angels, demons, and you. And again, if you go to notbyworks.org, uh, you can click on the link there and it'll take you to the conference website where it will be live streamed. We're not going to live stream it at the Not By Works live stream page, but they will be live streaming it. Uh, again, I want to point out on the screen for those of you that are watching the video later, uh, uh, it's 11.30 a.m. Mountain Time not Central Time. I had Central Time on the brain because we just got back from several days in Central Time, but it's actually up in Fort Collins, which last time I checked is on Mountain Time, unless they, they moved it, which if they did, I probably won't be able to find it. So check that out, and then don't forget the little devotional that we started with, that the Lord is with you, and we kind of pointed out uh, the, uh, the best May 4th meme ever, may the 4th be with you, the 4th there being a reference to one like the Son of God who appeared with the children, uh, Hebrew children there in the fiery furnace. So the Lord is with you, and uh, may He be with you the rest of this week, and we will see you on Sunday. So thanks for uh, tuning in, and God bless.